Natan Sharansky grew up in the Soviet Union, where he became an elite mathematician and chess whiz. But he also became a dissident, a human rights activist, and a supporter of Israel's right to exist. In other words, a Zionist. In 1978, Soviet authorities arrested him, ran him through a kangaroo court, and then sent him to the Gulag. When he was released by Mikhail Gorbachev nine years later, he went to Israel. He emigrated to Israel, where he became a politician and then a communal leader. In tandem with the American historian, Gil Troy, he tells his story in a new book, Never Alone, Prison, Politics, and My People. I'm pleased to say they are both here with us today. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're here too on Foreign Policy. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Raise this at the UN now, warn the world what is going to happen. So, Natan, if I may call you that, I have a question I have waited more than 40 years to ask you. <laughs> as, okay, as a young reporter, I covered your trial or I attempted to. The courtroom was closed to press and public. Your supporters mingled with journalists behind barricades outside the courtroom until one day an armored car, an armored vehicle drove up, back up to the exit from the court and took you away. You were not allowed to say a word to us. We were not permitted even to see your face. What I'll never forget are your friends and family shouting what was then your nickname, in this melancholy chorus as the vehicle disappeared into the distance. They were yelling, Tolia, Tolia, Tolia. And ever since, I have wondered, could you hear them? <laughs> no. <laughs> In fact, uh, I, I didn't hear them physically, uh, but I was very excited because just now I finished my last word where I said to uh, to that to my people and my wife I say next year in Jerusalem to the court I have nothing to say because their own function is to read the sentence which was prepared for them right. so and I and my brother was the only one who could hear it and say it so I imagined at this moment I imagined, how my message is reaching my friends and my supporters. And I was so glad that after a year and a half, 16 months of interrogations and full isolation, I finally could get my message to the world. And of course, they were also that all this court is kangaroo court and all the other things which I wanted the world to know. So I was full of excitement that I succeeded to bring the world. To see, no, I, I I couldn't hear, but it was a, a black car banned for the prisoners, and said that some turn the door shut, and suddenly I could see a very narrow view of the world. And what I saw it was uh, the the numbers of the cars K O four K O four K means correspondent. O4 means from America. The fact that it is white, it means that foreigners. So I, uh, that was very informative. I understood that there are many American correspondents who are near the court. But that was the all information which I could get physically. Otherwise, all was in my imagination. For the next nine years, I would live in the world of imagination, which happened to be the the right picture of the world and not the one which KGB was drawing. And, and Gil, as, a, as an historian, provide a little historical context. In particular, what was the state of the Cold War back then? So in, uh, 19, uh, in the 1970s, 
we in the United States are in a downturn. It's a period of stagflation, a period of Watergate, Vietnam. America's lost its first war. Uh, crime is on the streets. Uh, there's great partisan division. Americans feel like we've lost our mojo. Mm. And we feel like the Soviet Union is on the way up. But the Soviet Union seems to be so strong. And so those of us sitting, as I was in New York in the 1970s, um, looked at the Soviet Union as unbeatable. And the United States of America as an experiment that might fail. Um, a reminder that we have ups and downs in our country and we have a lot more resilience than we often give it credit for. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, um, from the insider's view, someone like Natan Sharansky, uh, has its weaknesses, is rotting from within. All its five-year plans have turned into five-year flops. Um, economically, it's not working. Uh, it continues to have to oppress its own people in order to, to keep some modicum of order. And so from the outside, it may look strong, the Red Army. From the inside, it's weak. And two other things that are happening are, one, that um, the United States has in a remarkable display of bipartisanship. Since Harry Truman, um, now the, it's, it's, Harry Truman came on, on board in 1945, this is now the third decade of American presidents and often uh, American uh, senators and uh, members of Congress working together. Politics stops at the water's edge. Mm. And so there's a bipartisan commitment on the whole to fighting the Cold War, even after Vietnam. And thanks to Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan, <laughs> two people who would disagree with each other quite profoundly, uh, in the 1970s and the early 80s, you would have a whole new conversation about human rights. And so when Natan Sharansky is falsely imprisoned um, and sent to the gulag for he doesn't know how long, it's a sentence of 13 years, it ends up being nine years um, in the late 1970s, Jimmy Carter is president. And Jimmy Carter, for whom I have uh, certain criticism, actually does something incredibly noble. And he had actually brought in the language of human rights, um, which was starting to spread throughout the, the, the world at that time. Um, and, and he acknowledges that Natan Sharansky, Anatoly Sharansky at the time, is not an American spy. And the danger of doing that is that it, it implies that what about, what about everybody else? And so, he, so it really was a break from precedent. And it was a very noble moment um, in Jimmy Carter's life. And, uh, and, and, and Natan Sharansky then goes deep into the gulag. Um, but fortunately, after Jimmy Carter comes Ronald Reagan, a president who, especially after he sits with uh, Natan's wife, Avital Sharansky, who crisscrosses the globe fighting for Natan Sharansky's freedom, uh, takes on the Sharansky case very much as, as, as a personal endeavor. Um, and it's that pressure that ultimately helps free Sharansky uh, nine years later. And then, of course, the Soviet Union by then is, is, is really starting to implode. Right, right. Natanya, you write in the book that for like 20 years, you thought of yourself as a loyal Soviet citizen. And then you had, I think, what you call a breakthrough moment when you crossed over <laughs> to the other side. You made a transition. What, what was it that caused that breakthrough, that transition for you? Yeah, well, you know, I was deprived in, uh, in the Soviet Union of two things, of freedom as everybody and of identity. With growing as a Jew, uh, for the word Jew only meant that that's what's written in the idea of your parents, but there was nothing positive, no religion, no culture, no tradition, nothing. Uh, your identity was erased by Soviet Union. And, uh, you feel very uncomfortable being uh, being deprived of freedom, but you are not fighting for it because there are no values except for the value of survival. When later in 1967, Israel entered my life very powerfully because, because everybody looks at you and says, how you guys did it? And they used to think, why these people say to me how we did it? What they have to do with Israel? And then when you want, you start reading in the underground about your own history and about your own people and suddenly discover that it all can be yours. It's so exciting. It's so interesting. And then rediscovering identity, you have enough strength. Suddenly there are values in your, your life that gives you strength to say the, to start speaking truth about yourself, fighting for your rights. And then the moment you feel relieved that you can say, say what you're really thinking, it's so revealing, it's so good. You start speaking 
fighting for the rights of other Jews and for, for the rights of everybody. That's how it turned. Uh, it took a few years, but they became like activists and spokesmen of human rights movement and uh, Soviet Jewry movement in the Soviet Union. Right, right. Um, and your book is titled, as I mentioned, Never Alone, Prison Politics and My People. Why, first of all, tell us how you could not be alone when for, you were in solitary confinement for months, years, um, and why it's important that you maintain this belief that you are not alone. Well, uh, uh, KGB arrested you uh, and uh, accuses you in high treason, in espionage for the United States of America. And uh, say you clearly, look, uh, there was never in our history that we accuse somebody in espionage and he will stay alive if he doesn't cooperate. And what means cooperate? We'll go to press conference and say publicly, uh, condemn Israel, condemn America, that we are right and you're wrong. And so, uh, so choose or your life or these few words. And they say, and uh, you're alone. Everybody is arrested. The uh, people are afraid to mention your name when they because they think you're a spy. So it is very important for them to convince you that you're alone in this world. That these 17 KGB interrogators because it was like case against all our wounds. There were 17 interrogators. They are the last people who you see. And that's why everything depends, as they say, on you, on, on, the, on this, whether you are ready to go on this press conference or not. And you have to convince yourself in order not to give up to KGB. That in fact, you are in the center of a big historical struggle against this awful dictatorship. And that the uh, the future of the struggle depends also on you because they are in the very center of it. And uh, that all your people and all the people of free world uh, have an invested interest in this struggle and they are with you. It is very important for you. Uh, that what will give you strength to choose between what they call life and death, but you understand that's the choice between go back to be Soviet slave or to be a free person in prison. So the fact, this feeling of solidarity, of support that you are in the middle of a historical struggle, that all the people are with you, that's something very important. That was the only argument which you can put against KGB. But Gil definitely can say how this uh, title of the book was born. You know, so, the, the, you, you may, I'm sorry, Gil, go ahead. No, no. Uh, so the, the, the working title of the book was 999 um, yeah. because uh, Natan's life is organized by nine years in Gulag, nine years in Israeli politics, and nine years in the Jewish agency, uh, the world's largest NGO. And then he often adds, and I don't know where I suffered the most. Um, <laughs> and, and we saw, literally signed a book contract, 999. But I, I, I didn't like the title, first of all, because a book title shouldn't be an inside joke. Second of all, I worried 999, 666 might get people thinking of the devil. And even for my German friends, 999 was just way too negative. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm sitting with a, with a friend of mine in Los Angeles and, and telling him about the book and saying, we need a, a, a new title. He says, well, tell me about the book. And I echo what Natan just said, which is he's in the gulag. He's told again and again, you're forgotten, you're abandoned. He says, but I knew I was never alone. And then my friend goes, that's it. He says, for 75 years, the Jewish people have been saying never again. And of mm -hmm. course, the, the vow to make sure that there's never a, a petition of the Holocaust is so important and so sacred to us. And we don't forget that. But never alone is the message for the next generation. That when you're a part of a people, in this case, the Jewish people, you're a part of a network of values and ideas and stories and people who will look out for one another. And I think that so we came up with that title, Never Alone, never anticipating the pandemic. But I think the title Never Alone um, is relevant for all of us, uh, both those of us, you know, stuck in quarantine or stuck in our apartments or homes for long stretches to know that when you're part of something bigger than yourself, you're never alone. And in a world where, unfortunately, nationalism is all too often seen as simply putting up walls rather than opening up hearts. Uh, if we know that when you're a part of a community, a part of a people, you're never alone, it can remind us about the constructive 
quote unquote lowercase l liberal parts of nationalism uh, and can perhaps get us left and right Republicans and Democrats talking to one another with civility again. You know, I, I, I spent some time in, in the Soviet Union as a student and as a, as a journalist. And I remember a joke that would be told among the intelligentsia. And the joke was, the question was, what do you call a man of integrity? And the answer was an inmate. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the idea there, as I remember, was uh, among a lot of the people I knew, particularly as a student, I, they, were in, they were intellectuals, they were not pro-Soviet, but they weren't dissidents the way you were, Natan, and on purpose, because they knew that if, they, if, their, if their dissidents rose above a certain level, if their head rose above the barricades, they were going to get metaphorically shot. They would be ready because you could you you could not participate in some of the marches. You could make sure at university to study things that weren't controversial to have some kind of career that didn't get you. But you do, you know do you you might want to be careful and not get yourself sent to the gulag if you could. Now again, in the 1930s, it was almost impossible to do that. But eventually, it became you made a decision that you were going to become an activist. And yes, that could very well mean your head's going up above the barricades and you are going to be in the, in the, in the crosshairs. You, uh, you, I'm guessing, you tell me, that you understood as you became more vocal about what you were thinking, that you knew you might pay a very, very yes. serious price. Yes, first of all, in general, uh, under every dictatorship, and the right, I had analyzed and described it in the, my book, The Case for Democracy. And the every dictatorship, there emerged three groups of people. One is true believers, those who accept the ideology of dictatorship, if it has something. It's, it feels comfortable with this dictatorship. It's usually it's small group and it becomes smaller and smaller. The second group is dissidents, those who are ready to speak the truth and they know that their freedom and their life is in danger. It's a very small group. The third group is permanently growing group of double thinkers. Those who don't believe anymore in the official ideology, but they are not ready to speak publicly. And in fact, the longer the dictatorship, the bigger this group. And if you were in Moscow in the 70s, I think, uh, almost every intelligent person was a double thinker. And uh, the revolution is when many people already are ready to cross the line, uh, this red line between double think and uh, dissent. Then happens the revolution. Now, in my life, I was a loyal Soviet citizen, what means a true double thinker. Uh, I tell the book how... I know exactly the day when I became a Soviet, loyal Soviet citizen. I was five years old. Stalin died. My father explains to me that it is very good for Jews. We were in big danger. And now we are really saved in the last moment. You should remember all your life that miracle happened. Stalin died. But don't tell it to anybody. And next day in the kindergarten, I cry together with all the children. I sing songs about the son of all the people, Stalin. And I have no idea how many children are really crying and how many are crying like me because uh, father said us to do it. So that is typical life of Soviet citizen. It's very uncomfortable life because you are in permanent self-censorship. But that's how majority of intelligence and uh, thinking people live in Soviet Union. When I crossed this uh, uh, line, as I said, when I had enough courage to say for the first time what I really think, suddenly you feel relief. It's so good to speak your mind freely. And then all, all these years after uh, the moment KGB was proposing me to make any compromise, I knew that they, what they really proposed me to go back to this state of slavery or mental slavery that you lived uh, before. And I prefer to live as a free person, even if you're in prison. And Gil, from the time when Natan was a young boy and Stalin died and he cried, uh, the Soviet Union begins to go through periods of transition. Uh, Khrushchev was different from Stalin for sure. Uh, 
I think of Brezhnev and Dropov. And eventually when Natan is freed, it's by Mikhail Gorbachev. Not out of, he's freeing him not out of the goodness of his heart, but, um, but Mikhail Gorbachev is no Brezhnev and certainly no Stalin. Absolutely. You know, um, when we first started writing the book, my son, who was 20 at the time, uh, said that he'd read Natan's memoir, Fear No Evil. And uh, he said, why didn't they just shoot the guy? And I realized that for the, the, the younger generation um, who didn't grow up with us, like us watching the Soviet Union, understanding that the Soviet Union wasn't exactly like Nazi Germany, that they needed an explanation of what is totalitarianism, what is Soviet totalitarianism, what is Marxism? And so it was really a very helpful question because what does this generation know? They know Nazis and they know Hollywood dictators. And so in the book, what we try to do is we try to explain exactly what you just talked about, that there's a difference between the mass murders of, um, of the early days, especially under Stalin, of tens of millions being killed, um, and then the thaw. And, and Natan experiences the thaw, uh, the thaw under Khrushchev, when part of it, again, it's not out of the goodness of their heart, but they start realizing that, hey, wait a minute, if I'm part of a regime that can send people off and kill them, then, then the next day, if things flip, I can be the one who's sent off and, and to be killed. And so in the Khrushchev thaw, we start talking about how a little bit of breathing space comes in and a little bit of ability for those dissidents, that intelligentsia, to, to emerge um, in a soft way. And by the time we get to the 1970s, the Soviet Union itself is deteriorating much more. Um, but one of the things that's also going on is the, the pressure of the United States is growing. And that's where, you know, Natan is, is lucky in a sense that the, uh, the nine years that he's in the gulag is not under Stalin's, is not in Stalin's day um, when <laughs> you didn't last that long. Um, it's not even in Khrushchev's day when there wasn't the same kind of pressure from the media. There was no human rights community and you don't have Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan. And ultimately he's freed, not just due to Mikhail Gorbachev, and, uh, and, and, and the, the, the lightning in the Soviet Union that it's going on, but a worldwide campaign spearheaded by his amazing wife, Avital, to demand, let my people go, but also let this person go. And the leadership by the 1980s of Ronald Reagan and uh, a remarkable group of, uh, of public servants in the Reagan administration who will not let this man uh, get lost um, in the in the bowels of the, of the gulag. And um, in, in, as part of the, the research for the book, we looked at some of the memos that were going back and forth um, about this man named Anatoly Sharansky. Uh, and, and it's quite moving to see how despairing they were because at the time, uh, Natan was going through hunger strikes. Um, his physical, he's today, he's quite robust. Back then, um, much less so. So they was worried about his physical safety, uh, but also constant attempts to save this man who had become a symbol not just to the Jewish community, but to the human rights community and to the world of someone who stands up for freedom. You know, uh, you wrote, Natan, and I, and I think you wrote, first wrote it back in 2004, about the world dividing between free societies and what you called fear societies. Fear societies. I've, 16 years later, that's, it seems to me that's still true, but disappointingly, the number of fear societies has not decreased. Has it? And in fact, things are interesting. Things are happening in the Middle East. We'll talk about them. But Israel remains the only free and democratic country. Uh, Turkey, which seemed to be evolving in the right way, I would argue no longer is. I, I don't think you, dis you dispute that. Nobody can guarantee uh, to, to freedom and democracy one way street. It's much more complicated. But uh, yes, there is definitely retreat, for example, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there were many new countries emerged. Uh, uh, it, it seemed that now, taking into account the, this uh, uh, life under the communism, the people will uh, all rush for freedom and democracy. We see that situation is much more complicated. But uh, I would say there is also one more alarming signal. Uh, the, the dividing the world between free societies and fear societies, we, I and my co-author of that book, The Case of Democracy, Ron Derman proposed town square test, that if you can go to, the, uh, to the, your town square and say whatever you think and will not be 
punished by imprisonment or your life for this, then you live in the free society. It can have many problems. It can, uh, uh, it can be criticized for many things, but it's free, free, free society. If you are afraid to say it publicly, it means that you live in the fear society. And it was very simple criteria which could be applied practically to any country in the world. And of course, it means that in fear society, there is a lot of double thinkers who are afraid to speak their mind freely. What we, we saw in the last 20 years, and especially in the last year, there are more and more people in the free world who are afraid to speak publicly about their political views. And though I still am not ready to, to apply that criteria uh, uh, broadly to say that uh, free, uh, many democracies are also fear societies, but the very fact that in America, the polls, last cut of polls show that I think 60 or something of these percents of the people prefer not to discuss their political views. That I believe should be extremely alarming. You know, Gil, uh, uh, picking up on this point of the, uh, the the town square test, can you get up and speak your, your mind? Um, obviously, that has never been true in Gaza. It's also not true in the West Bank under the what is generally considered the more modern Palestinian authority. And, and I, I was on, I used to be on a committee reporting to Condi Rice when she was uh, Secretary of State on democratization, and she was all in favor of elections in Gaza and the uh, and, and the West Bank. And I was a skeptic because I said, you can't get up in a soap on a soapbox anywhere and say, you know what, I'm running because I'm going to, on day one, I will sit down with the Israelis and I'll work out peace with them. Enough of this conflict. You can't say that on a soapbox. So to have elections without freedom of press, freedom of speech, doesn't make any sense. I don't think it, it takes us anywhere. And she said, well, Cliff, it's a first step. You should understand. And it's, you got to see it as it's making progress. Um, but the fact is, after all these years under the Palestinian Authority, post-Oslo, I'm opening a lot of boxes, I realize, there is no, there are no institutions of democratic governments or freedom, in certainly in Gaza, but also not in the West Bank, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure that I, I've raised some issues for you, Gil. <laughs> Certainly, I mean, a key part of, the, of, of our book, Never, Never Alone, talks about the failure of the Oslo peace process. Because within weeks of uh, Oslo, the Oslo Accords in 1993, Natan Transky writes an article um, saying, wait a minute, you can't have an agreement between Israelis and Palestinians which brings back Yasser Arafat from exile in Tunisia, which empowers him and which cynically is, is basically using him to oppress his own people. Because at the end of the day, as a dictator, what's he going to do? He's going to need an enemy. And who's the most convenient enemy? The Israelis. And so you're trying to prop up a peace plan that's ultimately has the seeds of its own failure built in. And it's chilling when you read that article, because this is written um, in October 1993, just literally just days after Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat had that awkward um, handshake where Bill Clinton basically, you know, pulled them together. And, and Natan spells out the great failure that you also sensed that um, now, and, and we're very careful to say, obviously you have to make peace with dictators and uh, you know, Roosevelt and, and, and Churchill worked with Stalin. It's not that you never make peace with dictators, but you can't do it foolishly. You can't do it naively. And uh, indeed, if, if there had been patience back in the 1990s and the West had taken all the money they've thrown at the Palestinians and invested it in civil society, if the West had taken all the money they've thrown in, in, in the Palestinians and used it as leverage to say that without specific benchmarks of progress vis-a-vis -vis improving the quality of Palestinians' lives from economics to, um, to, to democratic politics, to civil society, you're not going to get this money. We might be uh, in a very different place. But instead, we've had decades of stalemate. We've had, um, unfortunately, policymakers, Republicans and Democrats, going back to the same hymnal again and again and again, the same playbook again and again and again. And uh, I, the one reason why I'm not so pessimistic is because in the last six months, we've actually seen that if you try to build a peace, not imposed from the top down, but 
business by business, cultural connection by cultural connection, academic tie by academic tie from the ground up, as we're starting to see between Israel and the UAE, between Israel and Bahrain, you have a chance for more authentic peace. And that's a, a very short um, summary of one of the key themes in, uh, in the second part of Never Alone, which is, uh, we say never alone, but when Natan Sharansky is in the Israeli government, um, he is never alone standing up for democracy. Right-wingers say, ah, what are they doing with democracy? And left-wingers say, wait a minute, we need to give them peace and let them create their own democracy when they get to it. I think Natan has... Certainly. Yeah, I know, you're jumping the bit. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, Cliff, you, you, you told about your conversation with Condoleezza Rice, and it reminded me something. You know, uh, uh, President Bush became a big fan of my book, The Case of Democracy. Yes. Uh, uh, if he was successful with everything, as he succeeded in selling uh, uh, so many copies of my book, he was <laughs> was successful president of the history of America. <laughs> so being this big fan, and really it was very moving to see how sentimental he became about it, how, how he really believed in uh, the desire of people to be free, how he welcomed dissidents, and he made more dissidents than any other president, I think, in the history. But there was one point on which we disagreed, because in my book I was writing that uh, Elections by themselves, it's not democracy. Free elections in free society. Uh, so elections is the last stage of building uh, free society, and not the first step. Uh, the, the dictatorships have demo, uh, regular elections like Soviet Union all the time. And that is why I was trying to convince President not to rush with the elections, or at least to say I was praying his assistance, at least say publicly before elections that it's not democratic elections. It's not about the end of this process. And, uh, and by the way, the same about Iraq, that uh, after uh, if we bring down Saddam Hussein and let people of Iraq to have elections, that's the end of the story. And uh, I, I think then we saw it again and again, Azov is one of these examples, that if you really want to have civil society, then elections come after the long, pro free elections, coming after a long process of building civil society institutions. And uh, of course, Oslo was absolutely opposite to this. We are making sure that there'll be no civil society institution because we are bringing a dictator who will destroy all this in order to rule their people, but we will make sure that he will be our dictator by corrupting him. That was the idea of Oslo. Yeah, yeah. No, that's and, and, and the idea that you can corrupt, seduce, bribe, rent dictators, that's still a popular notion to a lot of politicians in, uh, in, the, in this country and, and in Europe, I would argue. You know, I, I want to, happy to have you comment on that, but I, I, this is a bit of a digression, but I think it's, while I have you, you mentioned United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, both normalizing, not just establishing diplomatic relations, but normalizing relations with the Israelis. The Palestinians have for years said we won't normalize relations at all. We won't even begin a process of normalization. Um, and then the Sudan also, and now it looks like there's going to be uh, a, a much warmer relations. Tell, I'm just curious both of you, start with you, Gil, your response to these developments. A tremendous excitement. I mean, first of all, it really does show the, the failure of the peace processors um, for decade after decade, not even to think outside the box. And, um, and, and it shows the moral failure uh, on the university campuses to stand tall against the Palestinian boycott. And um, who does the boycott hurt? The boycott hurts those nice people who want to build bridges between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, in Israel, I know I've spoken to many people from the United States Embassy over the years, they try to make some kind of lovely program, and it's the Palestinian, and it's the left-wing Israelis who are happy to come, and it's the Palestinians who say no. And it's insane, and the degree to which the West, and especially intellectuals and, and, and progressives, have collaborated in that crime against peace. Uh, they yell peace now, but they actually by being anti-normalization, they create war forever, and they and they perpetuate the stalemate. So the 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 movement um, in the UAE, in Bahrain, um, and now in Sudan proves that a there are other paths to peace. B 
the path to peace in the Middle East isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily go through the Palestinians. And C, normalization is a moral, not just diplomatic and political good. And the other thing I just want to say is that there's tremendous excitement in Israel about this. Uh, there was a, 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 a little video that went around of a Bahraini, Bahraini singer, I'm sorry, I don't know his name, uh, dressed in beautiful Arab robes, um, who's been learning Hebrew for months. <laughs> and they said to him in Hebrew, they said, well, are you excited about going to Tel Aviv? He said, Tel Aviv, I want to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> and, 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 and there's an, a, a sense of, just like the Israelis have often felt hemmed in, we haven't had neighbors, we have, we have, we have nowhere to turn to, and we're looking for partners, we're looking for cousins, we're looking for friends. Uh, you get a sense that in, uh, in the Gulf, there's also that excitement, and the business opportunities that are opening up, I'm now hearing about academic ties, uh, cultural ties, and, and that's not making the newspapers, because the newspapers in the United States are still focused on the Palestinian narrative, the Palestinian story, the Palestinian propaganda. And that's really, it's a crime against peace. And it's a crime, as Natan has taught me, not just against Israelis, not just against the the Arabs in the Gulf, but against Palestinians themselves. Yes, if I may add that the important peace agreements with Egypt and with Jordan bring to normalization. In fact, public opinion in Egypt, and especially public opinion in Jordan, with full support of their leaders, is absolutely against any normalization with Israel. To think that any actor would like to go with the concerts to Israel, that it's like to, to have a death sentence to himself in, in Jordan today. And so here, for the first time, we see how the governments encourage, but the grassroots want very much this normal relations with Israel, uh, how they are really standing in line. Tourist business, when people of arts standing in line to start working together with Israelis. And in the end, the, those who will benefit from this will be also Palestinians, because that creates opportunity for our mutual efforts to help them get out of refugee camps, to have joint ventures and uh, and normal business which makes them independent from their leaders and not to the contrary. And no doubt that what will open the uh, way to the real peace process. And there's one last point on this, just to see if you agree with me. I Look, I think what's, what's happened could have an influence on, on, on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but not so long as Mahmoud Abbas is in charge, and of course not so long as Hamas is in charge in Gaza. There needs to be some transition first before you get any Palestinian leaders willing to say, all right, we have to give up the dream of replacing Israel and consider a way to peacefully coexist with Israel. I I don't see that coming while Hamas rules Gaza, and Mahmoud Abbas doesn't see his legacy uh, and the way he wants to be remembered as um, shaking hands with uh, Netanyahu or even uh, Gantz on the White House lawn um, with either Trump or, or, or Joe Biden wrapping his arms around him. Well, absolutely. As uh, I was, was saying, as we say in this book and some of my previous writings, the, uh, the leadership which will emerge as a result of building civil society, the leadership which will be elected in free elections as a result of this uh, uh, developing of free society, it will be the leadership which is interested in the well-being of their own people. That's the difference between dictatorships and democracy. In dictatorship, people depend on dictator. In democracy, leaders depend on their own people. So. These people who depend on their own people, these leaders, and who, uh, as a result, are interested, in order to to continue being leaders, they're interested in the well-being of their people, they, as partners of negotiations, can come to compromises with us. Uh, The the leadership, in fact, uh, dictatorship, which was brought from outside, which is based mainly on controlling their own people, Uh, by fear, which is interested in continued uh, distrust, even hatred towards Israel, it it will never be interested to have a real uh, healthy compromise and peace. 
you um, knew and, and, and have known and gotten along with and been and advised of Israeli prime ministers ever since you got back. Can you spent nine years in, pol- in politics yourself? Um, with Ariel Sharon, you were close, but you disagreed with him over Gaza. To be generous, and I, I'd like to be, he may have thought that by withdrawing from, if the problem was the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, if he ended Israeli presence in Gaza, and Gaza became a sort of Singapore, a Hong Kong, if, that, if, if, if the Israelis were given credit for having made that concession, where no, that, that disputed territory, we will let you have, then there could be progress in the West Bank. But you, you could see that, and, and, and I know you had a falling out with him, it's in the book, over his decision to simply withdraw from Gaza. You knew that that would bring, that would, that would bring no progress. Well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, I have to say, as the one who had many conversations with Ariel Sharon, and he really tried to convince me to stay in the government, even if I continue voting against, we cooperated together on many questions. But from his conversations, I don't have a feeling that he believed that other will become Singapore. He had no illusions like this. Uh, uh, Shimon Peres had such illusions about this in Middle East. So he had no belief that uh, these uh, Arab countries around him can become Singapore. But he did believe, or he or he convinced himself that that uh, we are under pressure of the free world of our best allies who want to have peace as soon as possible, and if we'll make such a dramatic step will get out of us and will remove all the settlements, which here Ariel Sharon built, by the way, uh, which will take these 8,000 Jews out of their homes and bring them back to Israel. After this, free world, for 10 years, he, he gave me this figure that he believed that for 10 years, they, nobody will be pressing us. And if only uh, Palestinians will dare to have one shot from us on us, we can destroy their everything because uh, because the world will understand the, how just is our cause. And I told him frankly, Arik, you don't have ten years, you don't have ten days. Well, in fact, he had two or three months when he could do almost everything. But that's it, and it's clear that uh, if the world wants to have peace, why they should uh, buy it? But what I was warning that by giving this territory under the control of dictatorial terrorist groups. We are simply helping to create the biggest terrorist base in the Middle East. And the, it will be good, bad for Jews, it will be very bad for Palestinians. And the rock missiles, and I was even writing about it, missiles which are coming out as the road will come to Ashdod. How naive I was, the uh, missiles came to Haifa, practically to any other place. It became the biggest terrorist base, and all these settlements which we left became simply a launching port for the missiles against us. So that is not the way to bring peace to, to Palestinians or to, to Jews. And that's why I resigned from Ariel Sharon's government. One of the subjects in this book is what you call the uh, the new anti-Semitism. And now, maybe talk a little bit about why it's new. Certainly, anti-Semitism seems to be resurging in many places, curiously, not so much in the Arab world, oddly enough. I was in uh, Saudi Arabia not long before the pandemic broke, and uh, quite amazed to hear how people talked about Israelis and Jews in, in Saudi Arabia, I think with, with some sincerity, but... But there is something rising that's that's worse. It's quite unfortunate and quite heartbreaking that um, one of the centers of the new anti-Semitism is the college campuses. And uh, look at me, I'm a case of arrested development. I got to the university and never left. <laughs> so it's not that I get any joy in bashing the uh, universities. But the reason why we use the phrase the new anti-Semitism is because the old anti-Semitism, the traditional anti-Semitism, singled out the Jew. The new anti-Semitism singles out Israel as the Jew of the world. And it's this continuity because you can see many of the same tropes, many of the same stereotypes, many of the same caricatures, many of the same libels that were used about the greedy Jew, the, the deadly Jew, 
the, 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 the Jew as the center of all the problems of the world um, in the Mid-Ages are now translated and used to attack Israel. And the reason why you have to call it out as anti-Semitism is because people say, oh, no, I'm just criticizing Israel. And of course, you hear uh, both our passion, but especially in a ton's passion for democracy, for democratic rule, for the, um, for the town square test. We're not afraid of criticism. We're not afraid of a culture of criticism. We're not afraid of robust criticism. But when the criticism becomes demonization, when the criticism is based on double standards, when the criticism is uh, leading to the delegitimization of only one country, Israel, then you start saying, hmm, it doesn't pass the anti-Semitic smell test. And in fact, those three Ds that I just worked into the conversation were the three Ds that Natan articulated um, as a way of helping the world understand the continuity between the old anti-Semitism and the new anti-Semitism, the distinction between healthy criticism of Israel and unhealthy criticism of Israel, which becomes which has echoes of anti-Semitism. And while it's often seen as, oh, well, you're, you're, you're creating all these red lines, there's no room to, to, to have a conversation. By articulating that in that way, he actually created a space for lots of healthy, robust criticism of Israel. As long as you don't go into demonization, double standards, and delegitimization. And today, unfortunately, um, we, we call uh, anti-Semitism the most plastic of hatreds. And that's a play on uh, the late uh, scholar Robert Listrich, Listrich, who called it the longest hatred, one of the mm-hmm. oldest hatreds. But it's also the most plastic because, like plastic, it can be, it can be moved around. It can be reshaped. It, you can talk about the Jew as the Marxist, the Jew as Rothschild. You can talk about um, the, the, the Jew as, as being too weak and the Jew as being too strong. It's malleable. It's artificial and it's toxic. And today, Jews have really given a beautiful gift to the far left and the far right. They disagree about everything except Jew hatred. And, and they figure out ways to demonize us, to delegitimize us. And the mistake we all make in the Jewish community and in the broader American community is our left-wing friends are so busy yelling about Trumpian anti-Semitism and, and the alt-right and right-wing anti-Semitism, they don't clean house. And my right-wing friends are so busy yelling about campus anti-Semitism, progressive anti-Semitism, they don't clean house. We need left-wingers fighting left-wing anti-Semitism, right-wingers fighting right-wing anti-Semitism, and all of us, Jews and non-Jews, blacks and whites, having clear red lines against all forms of bigotry. And it can't be partisan, it can't be political. And uh, Natan, at this point, sadly, the United Nations, and in particular, the UN Human Rights Council, those are our serious fonts of anti-Semitism today. Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, if you're speaking about a double standard uh, 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 towards Israel as one of the manifestations of today's new anti-Semitism, there is one of the best manifestations of this double standard is the policy of the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations that from all the conflicts in the world, there is only one conflict which is put as a per, on the permanent agenda of the, of the committee. What means that every year, the number one question is Israeli occupation and violation of human rights against Palestinians. And I'm not going now to debate it. It's a very complicated, but I asked the representatives of the United Nations, why not Tibet and China? Why not Chechnya? Why not what's happening in Southern Sudan? And you know what the answer was? The commissioner on human rights, and, uh, uh, one very respectable uh, lawyer from uh, Canada, she told me, you're right, but you have to understand in the United Nations, there is like silent agreement between uh, Russia and Arab countries that Chechnya will not be brought. It was when the Chechnya conflict. So there is an agreement between China and African countries that Tibet will not be brought, and so on and so on. So what you find out that the only thing that everybody can agree, at least not support, but agree that they don't care if Israel will be condemned every year for violation of human rights, and of course it's ridiculous. But you know, I also, yeah, I want to, to dealing with your previous remark, to say, 
Well, it's very interesting what happened in the last days. In the last days, Elon Carr, who is official representative of Trump administration fighting anti-Semitism, uh, and who is doing, by the way, very important work, signed agreement in the name of uh, American government with the Royal Institute of Tolerance in Bahrain. It's like a state institution. Agreement to fight together against global anti-Semitism based on inter international uh, definition. International definition which all includes all the three Ds, that uh, anti-Zionism can be also anti-Semitism. So Bahrain agreed to fight anti-Semitism, including anti-Zionism. Many parts of liberal society in the West, including many of the universities in the United States, refuse to accept this definition. So we can have interesting uh, situation when some uh, countries in the Muslim world will be our partners in fighting anti-Zionism, and some very serious islands of liberalism and democracy will be refusing to participate in it. So last subject I want to bring up today, uh, in, your, in, in your third nine-year career, you were head of the Jewish agency, which looks at Jewish communities or that, where, wherever they may be. Uh, I've got two questions on this. The first one you can answer quickly. I, do you think that there will be Jewish communities in Europe by the end of this century? <laughs> well, uh, I think there will be small Jewish communities, uh, uh, de definitely uh, uh, Orthodox communities will keep themselves. And uh, some, some communities based on close cooperation with Israel. What, what I can tell for sure, and that's from my experience with Jewish communities all over the world, uh, if there is no strong connection with the faith and or no strong connection with Israel, the community has no future. If you have one of these things, uh, it's good. If you have both, your future is guaranteed. If you don't have this and this, there is no future. Gil, do you want to weigh in on this at all? Yeah, look, I, I, the, um What's fascinating is let's take the let's take the lens and go a little bit further back. Um, a century ago, most Jews lived in Eastern Europe um, and and in and Europe in general. Uh, the American Jewish community was relatively small. Israel was 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 nothing. Um, we're now at a situation where um, Israel is uh, about to be fifty percent of the Jewish world, and so it's a remarkable story of uh, of resurgence in the Middle East in the ancient homeland. Um, of, of Israel, uh, and and you really do have these two huge communities: the United States of America, uh, in the United States of America, and Israel. They cover eighty percent, eighty-five percent of the Jewish world. And in the book, we talk about how those two communities can start having a common language, even when they occasionally uh, agree to disagree. They also should remember to agree to agree. And um, and then the smaller satellite communities, ironically. Um, many of them have a certain robustness that the American Jewish community sometimes seems to lack because they're such a minority and because they tend to be much more cohesive. And we have serious concerns that we raise about uh, the American Jewish community and frankly about American culture, about where it's going in terms of um, making sure that there is a strong sense of cohesion, of loyalty, of patriotism. These are values that to me transcend left-right Democrat, Republican, um, but uh, definitely need work in the United States of America today. And very finally, Natan, uh, I... One thing, one thing, it's interesting also from my days in Jewish agency. You know that the, by far the biggest Jewish community in Europe is French Jewish community, 600,000 people. Uh, statistics showed, our studies showed a few years ago that half of these Jews believe that the future of their children is not in France. It's, it's huge. So is it of concern for Israel? Not at all. Is it of concern for French Jews? To some extent. Is it of concern for French government? I believe it should be big concern because what it really means for the future of France if majority, overwhelming majority of 
French Jewish community is thinking to leave France. Uh, I think if I was a European leader, I would be thinking every day, what made Jews of Europe to make such a decision? And again, very finally, I'm going to mention, as, as head of the Jewish agency, and I, I read this part of your book with, with great interest, you, you, well, actually, it was after, I think, you were in the Jewish agency. Anyway, one of the community, the Ethiopian Jewish community yeah. had its exodus from Africa, yeah. its exodus and return from exile to Israel. And I know you had a keen interest in that. And I should say, by the way, I did too. I, in, in 1984, I went to Gondar and northern mm-hmm. Ethiopia, uh, where the source of the Blue Nile, I think I was the first reporter to report on them as they were suffering from the famine and beginning to walk out to Sudan where they hoped to be rescued. Yeah. I just wanted to give you a second and you two to just reflect on that historic exodus and return from exile of Ethiopian Jews who are now living not without difficulties, but not without successes in Israel. I think it is one of the most exciting moments in my life after I was released from prison when I, as activist, went to Ethiopia the uh, Operation Shlomo, when in one night 14,000 Jews were brought by Israeli Air Force uh, to uh, Israel, of course, with the help of American government and president negotiations between the fighting armies and so on. But for me, to see how people who 2000, more than 2,000, 2,400 years, we are not in Israel, but we are praying all these years, kept their tradition in the most difficult, uh, almost conditions of Stone Age in Africa. And I was many times in Ethiopia after this, saw so, so these conditions. And uh, how in the airplane, it seems that there is nothing between us but when they hear that they are in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, 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 and they think about next year in Jerusalem, what I said in the, to, to the court in Russia, in the Soviet Union, it seems it can be not, you cannot be more different than Soviet Jews, Russian Jews, and Jews in Ethiopia, black and white from, uh, from Europe and from Africa, South years, and nevertheless, this, one idea, one dream unites them. It, it, that is the power of Zionism. That is the power of identity to make you to fight for freedom. You know, we talk about Natan uh, as a prisoner of, of Zion, a prisoner of conscience. We talk about him as an Israeli politician. We talk about him uh, as the head of the Jewish agency. In that chapter, we also talk about his uh, very short career as the flight attendant. Because <laughs> yes. In order to, um, to, to circumvent the Sabbath prohibition on working, um, he had to uh, say that he was going as an essential worker. And as someone who's been deemed a non-essential worker by my government for the last seven months, uh, <laughs> I know the difference between essential and non-essential. And the only way he could be essential was by going as a flight attendant. You can only imagine, we've already gotten a little sense of his sense of humor, how much he must have hammed it up, if I can use that word, um, with four <laughs> reporters um, on a huge jet going over from Tel Aviv to um, Ethiopia. And then on the way back, the excitement, you can hear it in his voice, of, of helping to be a part of the exodus. And uh, it, it's one of the really the, 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 the goosebumps part of the book, because you can really see how the exodus from Egypt and Natan's personal exodus from the Soviet Union and the exodus of these, um, these people from Africa all merge together. And uh, I, have to, I, I can't resist the propaganda point, which is that um, what other country, what other country which is overwhelmingly filled with people who are white and brown because of uh, Ashkenazim and, and Spartium has imported blacks lovingly. And, and part of the moving part of the story isn't just that they make it to Israel. And yes, of course, there are problems and there's a challenge in integration. But how uh, so many Israelis literally give the shorts, shirts off their back when they come. And, and how they embrace them. Uh, and that shows that it's really not about color and the lies that Zionism is racism and imperialism and colonialism are disproved by that moment and so many other moments. And, um, and, and, and we, but we should end on the, mo- on the note of inspiration that it took leadership, it took idealism, and it took, uh, and, and it took just that sense of you're never alone. The Jews of Ethiopia also learned that they were never alone um, because they were part of this amazing network uh, called the Jewish people. 
we're going to end there except with this question uh, Natan you were a chess whiz um, you talk about in the book about doing chess games in your head while in prison do you and Gil play chess now? <laughs> well uh, if Gil wants to try he's welcomed <laughs> okay Gil that's <laughs> you know, I, I'm used to, to play chess uh, in head uh, in solitary confinement in the branch cell and, and to, uh, with yourself of course and win all of them so who knows why should I take a risk playing with Gil <laughs> it's a marvelous book uh, much in it will give readers goosebumps and also provide intellectual simulation so I recommend it uh, without, without any hesitation it's been a great pleasure to have this conversation thank you very much both of you. Thank, thank you, you. Thank I hope we talk you. again soon hey, and thanks to all of you joining us here today on Foreign Policy Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. And you've been listening to Foreign Policy.